The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Our meditation This morning comes from the second chapter of the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be focusing to some extent on verses 5 through 11, that rich text that speaks of the incarnation of Christ, but we need to hear it in its neighborhood, in its context. So I'm going to begin to read in verse 1 and read on through verse 13. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Thus far God's word, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, even in these few moments, give us a glimpse of the meekness of the Lord Jesus, your beloved eternal Son, always and forever equal with you, radiating the form of God, divine glory, who became our human brother, who took the form, the identity of a slave and became obedient even to death on the cross and is therefore now, Father, by you, highly exalted. Father, help us to see Jesus, but also help us to see how seeing Jesus, in his meekness and his majesty, must transform us to make us reflections. We know flawed, we certainly are finite, but reflections of the grace and the humility of the Savior who gave himself to make us his very own. We pray in his name. Amen. 
In these meditations, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we're going to be thinking about the Apostle Paul's strategy of teaching us by example, uh, and at the same time, showing us Christ, uh, pointing us to his own example, as he did a couple of weeks ago, in reporting his news from his imprisonment. Uh, We saw See Paul Suffer was, I think, the title I gave to it. Uh, He was showing us how to respond to suffering by making preeminent in our hearts and our minds that goal that Christ would be honored in our bodies, whether by life or by death. For as Paul says in that opening section, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. All the way through this letter, Paul is going to be teaching us by showing us how it's done, how to respond to suffering with joy, how to respond to Conflicting, complete, competing priorities, which is what he's really addressing here in these opening verses of chapter 2. How to respond to those points that are friction points among us uh, with an others honoring servanthood. Chapter 3 is going to talk about how to respond to a pseudo-soteriology that points us to our own achievement. And he says, don't go there. I've gone that route. It's not just not gain, it's loss, it's garbage. What you want is a righteousness that's not your own achievement, the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's showing us how it's done. And here he reaches really the the apex in this amazing, amazing text about the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to hear this. We need to watch how it's done. Not only because we ourselves need to learn to respond to the challenges of our faith, not just by having our theology straight, which is crucial, but by seeing how those who are walking ahead of us put that theology into practice. But of course, we also have some little brothers and sisters in Jesus who are toddling along behind us. So we need that not only because we need to grow in godliness, but because they need to see in us something of what we can see in Paul and we'll see in Timothy and Epaphroditus and even here what we see in Jesus. So we also need to be paying attention to how it's done because others are looking at us. And those of us who are called or are to be called as pastors, ministers of word and sacrament, need to pay special attention because we need to not only preach it, but we need to live it ourselves so that uh, we can say, with humility, but with gratitude, uh, follow my example as I follow Christ. Well, we have this amazing text. It's a text that uh, deserves hours. I suspect perhaps Dr. Vendrunen in the Doctrine of of Christ course lingers long over this text. I know Dr. Strimple did in the course that I took from him almost 40 years ago, that same course back in Philadelphia. And I'm really not going to explore all the mysteries of the incarnation that are expressed in this amazing mountaintop. Um, Not all the issues related to whether this was originally a hymn sung by the early church, which Paul has now incorporated into inspired scripture, as many scholars believe. Um, Gordon Fee demurs from that. Uh, Those of you who have read his commentary says, no, this is all composed by Paul. It doesn't fit any particular rhythm scheme of either Greek or Hebrew hymnody or the Psalms. It's, it's Paul's own writing. Um, I'm not going to weigh into that today. I, I think Fee has a very good point in saying that this text is so interwoven with its context 
that uh, even if it had in some form an earlier history before it becomes inspired scripture through Paul's writing, it's, it fits here. It fits its neighborhood. And that's the first point I want to make, that this masterpiece that describes the incarnation and humiliation and exaltation of Jesus is so interwoven with its contextual neighbors that it's a way that Paul demonstrates how our lives are now interwoven with Christ. A number of terminological connections. Paul says in 2.7, Jesus made himself nothing. Uh, that's the way the ESV and the NIV as well translate a, a term, kanao, which in older versions were translated emptied himself, giving rise to all sorts of speculation about what he emptied out of himself. That's a dead end. We won't go there. The point is he nullified himself. He poured out himself in the incarnation and especially as he went to the cross. But that has a connection with what Paul had warned the Philippians about, about an empty glory, about conceit, taking glory that has no substance. So Paul makes that kind of a connection. He humbled himself, that is, he made himself low. 2.8 has a connection with what Paul says in 2.3, commending lowly-mindedness. Tapenas is our word there, scholars. Tapenas and tapenafrosune, lowly-mindedness, humility. In 2.8, we learn of Jesus becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as you heard in 2.12, Paul says, as you've always obeyed, you need to keep doing it, working out your own salvation. So that obedience language connects the, the hymn, this wonderful exposition of Christ with what's around it. But especially the introduction in verse 5, let this mind be in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. That mind language, it's, it's, it's a verb that really it's hard to render into English. Think, have a mindset, have an attitude, have a perspective. It's what he just used when he talked about having the same mind and having one mind, being unified in the way we look at ourselves and the way we look at one another. And Paul says, this is what you need to focus on, this attitude, this mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Is Paul calling us to follow Jesus' example? Of course, but more. And the unusual way that he phrases the introduction in verse 5 shows us that. It's hard to render into English, not only because of that verb, this think among yourselves, which also in Christ Jesus. There's, there's no verb in that second relative clause. It's, it's implied, is it, which was in Christ Jesus, the way the authorized version rendered it? Or is it something, as the ESV says, which is yours in Christ Jesus? That is, pick up that same idea of thinking. Think among yourselves. Take the perspective on each other and yourself that is appropriate to the way you should think in view of the fact that you're in Christ Jesus. That's pretty complicated. Hard to put into a translation. But that, I believe, is what Paul's getting at. Because you are in Christ Jesus... This needs to affect the way you look at yourself and the way you look at one another. It's not just be like Jesus, plain and simple. It's not replacing what would Jesus do with what would Jesus think and then go to it, grit your teeth and do it. No, it's 
think this way because you are in Christ Jesus. Because by grace, God has given you faith and united you to the Son. And because of that, the character of Jesus, and especially his selfless servanthood, must be and can be, to some extent, and growingly seen in you. So that's Paul's point in that introductory verse. Not just WWJT, what would Jesus think, but because you are in Christ, have this mindset that we see in him, who was in the form of God and then took the form of a servant. Now here is where I would really be tempted to wander into all the rich teaching of the person of Christ, but I can't, I can't. Time doesn't permit. Form, Paul uses twice in all of his letters, and both of them are right here. Form of God, form of a servant. NIV, as some of you may have, that renders it in very nature God. And that captures something, because maybe in English our word form may sound as though it's somehow an appearance that's not reality. But this Greek term morphe, especially as it appears in the Greek Old Testament, which it does appear in, even though it only appears twice here in Paul and once in a marginal text over in Mark in the New Testament. But this refers to something visible that reveals something invisible. True identity, visibly manifest. The form of God, the radiant light of the glory of God. But Paul says, this one who was in very nature God and showed it in radiant glory, who was equal with God and didn't seize that equality as a kind of a perk to be used for his personal advantage, who was equal with God, always and eternally equal with God, but didn't consider it something to be used for himself, instead took a second form, the form of a slave. Actually, that's the word that Paul uses here. The form of a slave. Not just becoming human, but becoming human as one who would serve others. Not becoming human as a crown prince placed on silk sheets in a palace. Becoming human as a child in a carpenter's family, placed in the hay of a feed trough, became a servant, a servant of the Lord, who becomes obedient, obedient to death on a cross. That's the apex, from heaven's heights to earth's steps. That's the humility of Christ. Paul doesn't overtly talk about the purpose for Christ's condescension here. It may be implied in some echoes to Isaiah's servant song in Isaiah 53, but he doesn't say, for our sake became human, for our sake became obedient to the cross. He doesn't have to say that. He says that over and over again in his letters, certainly said that in his preaching in Philippi. It's clear. But that's what he has in mind. The one who was in the form of God, true identity, visibly manifested in God's glory, became one who took the form of a slave, a real human being, our human brother. And Paul will pick up compounds of this rare term for Paul, morphe, and 
pull them in later on in this letter. He will talk about his goal of being conformed to the death of Christ in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And then ultimately, in 3.20 and 21, he'll speak of the reality that when Jesus appears from heaven, the great Savior and Lord appears from heaven, he will conform our bodies to his glorious body. We will share his form, in a sense, as the glorified Messiah brings us into that glory as well. So his coming to share our identity and in a humble state is for the purpose of exalting us. Not making us God, obviously, but making us glorified human beings who reflect his glory. One more thought. Time is gone. What about this third stanza? We see really it's a three-act play, isn't it? Divine pre-existence, verse 6. Humiliation, verses 7 and 8. Then verses 9 through 11, suddenly it's no longer Christ who's taking the actions. It's the Father who is hyper-exalting him and placing him above all else. Paul here is echoing Isaiah 45, a text in which Jehovah, Yahweh, says, I am God, there is no other, there is no other source of salvation. To me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will confess allegiance. Paul says, you know who that is, right? That Jehovah who is unparalleled? That's Jesus. If you are Jesus' witnesses, you're Jehovah's witnesses. That's right. The true Jehovah. And Paul deliberately incorporates that language in which the covenant God of Israel says, I have no equal and no parallel, and says this is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. But he also says that for a particular purpose. Because he wants us to see in the glorification of Jesus, the delight of the Father to bring honor to the Son, and the delight of the Son to bring honor to the Father. You see, the members of the triune God are not in competition with each other. Philippians might be in competition with each other. That's probably why Paul has to warn them about rivalry and empty glory and conceit. But Paul says, the more you're conformed to the heart of Christ, the more you're really conformed to the heart of the Father too. The Father delights to glorify the Son And as the Son is glorified and every knee bows before him and every tongue confesses that he is Lord, it's to the glory of God the Father. On the night before he went to the cross, you remember in the upper room, Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit coming, not to glorify himself, but to glorify Jesus and to take the things of Jesus and to show them to the apostles. And then Jesus, in his prayer to the Father, asked the Father, because he had glorified the Father, asked the Father, restore my glory. That beautiful harmony of others honoring delight. The template is the Trinity himself, the persons of the Trinity themselves. And of course, that's why Paul begins with a Trinitarian argument here. If there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, implied the love of God the Father, any partnership or participation in the Spirit, this is why you must and can love one another, honor one another sacrificially. Jesus has shown us 
preeminently what a heart for others looks like in action. And he's shown us what it may cost. God has planted us in Jesus Christ, who be, and, and he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ. Or as Paul says here in verse 13, God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not easy for us self-centered folk to have our hearts turned inside out to care for others. In fact, it's impossible for us to do that. But God is at work here, uniting us to Christ, that he might receive glory as we care for others, even preferring them, treating them as more significant than ourselves. And in so doing, people begin to see just a glimmer, just a glimmer of a reflection of the Lord who came from heaven's heights to earth's depths, who so loved us that he became obedient to death, even the cursed death of the cross, in order to bring us to himself. Let's pray. Father, we ask you, as you have placed us in Jesus Christ by your grace, begun a good work in us, by the gifts of faith that unite us to Christ and then bring with that union with Christ all the other wonderful gifts. Father, transform us more and more into the image of your beloved Son. We want to be conformed to Jesus. We want to know him. We also want to reflect him to others. And we know that Paul says that may involve death, if not physical martyrdom, a death to our own agendas and our own reputations. Father, that's what we long for. Because we long for our lives, in whatever circumstance, to bring glory to Christ, even as you delight to glorify your Son, and as your Son delights to glorify you. We pray this in the name of your beloved Son, glorious God, servant of the Lord. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.